Section 13 of The Lord of Death and the Queen of Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lord of Death and the Queen of Life by Homer Eon Flint. Part 3. The Survivor. Provided with a sledgehammer, a crowbar, and a hydraulic jack, and even with drills and explosives as a last resort, Jackson, Kinney, and Van Emmon returned the same day to the warden room in the top of that mystifying mansion. The materials they carried would have made considerable of a load had not Smith removed enough of the weights from their suits to offset their burden. They reached the unopened door without special exertion and with no mishap. They looked in vain for a crack big enough to hold the point of the crowbar. Neither could the most vigorous jabbing loosen any of the material. They dropped that tool and tried the sledge. It got no results. Even in the hands of the husky geologist, the most vigorous blows failed to budge the door. They did not even dent it. So they propped the powerful hydraulic jack, a tool sturdy enough to lift a house, at an angle against the door. Then, using the crowbar as a lever, the architect steadily turned up the screw, the mechanism multiplying his very ordinary strength a hundredfold. In a moment it could be seen that he was getting results. The door began to stir. Van Emmon struck one edge with the sledgehammer and it gave slightly. In another minute the whole door, weighing over a ton, had been pushed almost out of its opening. The jack overbalanced, toppled over. They did not readjust it, but threw their combined weight upon the barrier. There was no need to try again. With a shiver the huge slab of metal slid upright into the space beyond, stood straight on end for a second or so, then toppled to the floor. And this time they heard the crash for as the door fell a great gust of wind rushed out with a hissing shriek almost overbalancing the men from the earth they stood still for a while breathing hard from their exertion trying in vain to peer into the blackness before them under no circumstances would either of them have admitted that he was gathering courage in a minute the architect, his eyes sparkling with his enthusiasm for the antique, picked up the electric torch and turned it into the compartment. As he did so, the other two stepped to his side, so that the three of them faced the unknown together. It was just as well. Outlined in that circle of light and not six feet in front of them stood a great chair upon a wide platform, and seated in it, erect and alert, his wide-open eyes staring straight into those of the three, was the frightened mountainous form of Strokel, the giant himself. For an indeterminable length of time the men from the earth stood there, speechless, unbreathing, staring at that awful monster as though at a nightmare. He did not move. He was entirely at ease, and yet plainly on guard, glaring at them with an air of conscious superiority which held them powerless. Instinctively they knew that the all-dominating voice in the records had belonged to this Hercules, but their instinct could not tell them whether the man still lived. It was a doctor's brain that worked fast. Automatically, from a lifelong habit of diagnosis, he inspected that dreadful figure quite as though it were that of a patient. Bit by bit his subconscious mind pieced together the evidence. The man in the chair showed no signs of life. 
and after a while the doctor's conscious mind also knew. He is dead, he said positively in his natural voice, and such was the vast relief of the other two that they were in no way startled by the sound. Instantly all three drew long breaths, the tension was relaxed, and Van Emmon's curiosity found a harsh and unsteady voice. How under heaven has he been preserved all this time? Especially, he added, remembering, considering the air that we found in the room. The doctor answered after a moment, his reply taking the form of advancing a step or two and holding out a hand. It touched glass. For the first time since the discovery, the builder shifted the light. He had held it still as death for a full minute. Now he flashed it all about the place, and they saw that the huge figure was entirely encased in glass. The cabinet measured about six feet on each of its sides, and about five feet in height. But such were the squat proportions of the occupant that he filled the whole space. A slight examination showed that the case was not fixed to the platform, but had a separate bottom, upon which the stump-like chair was set. Also they found that thanks to the reduced pull of the planet, it was not hard for the three of them to lift the cabinet bodily, despite its weight of almost a thousand pounds. They let the tools lie there, discarded as much weight as they could, and proceeded to carry that ages-old superman out into the light. Here they could see that the great man was all but a negro in colour. It was equally clear, however, from an examination of his mammoth cranium and extraordinary expression that he was as highly developed along most mental lines as the greatest men on earth. It was the back of his head, however, so flat that it was only a continuation of his neck, or rather the shoulders, that told where the floor lay, that together with the hardness of his eye, the cruelty of his mouth, and the absolute lack of softness anywhere in the iron-like face or frame. All this condemned the monster for what he was. Inhuman. It was not easy to get him down the two flights of stairs. More than once they had to prop the case on a step while they rested, and at one time, just before they reached that curious heap of rubbish at the foot of the upper stairs, Jackson's strength gave way, and it looked as though the whole thing would get away from them. Van Emmon saved it all at the cost of a bruised shoulder. Once at the bottom of the lower flight, the rest was easy. Within a very few minutes, the astonished face of the engineer was peering into the vestibule. He could hardly wait until the airtight door was locked before opening the inner valves. He stared at the mammoth figure in the case long and hard, and from then on showed a great deal of respect for his three friends. Of course, at that time the members of the expedition did not understand the conditions of Mercury as they are now known. They had to depend upon the general impression they got from their first-hand investigations, and it is remarkable that the doctor should have guessed so close to the truth. He must have made up his mind to outlast everybody else, was the way he put it as he kicked off his suit. He stepped up to the cabinet and felt of the glass. I wish it were possible without breaking the case to see how he was embalmed. His fingers still rested on the glass. Suddenly his eyes narrowed. He ran his fingers over the entire surface of the pane, and then whirled to stare at a thermometer. That's mighty curious, he ejaculated. This thing was bitter cold when we brought it in. Now it's already as warm as this car. Smith's eyes lit up. 
It may be, he offered, that the case doesn't contain a vacuum, but some gas which has an electrical affinity for our atmosphere. Or, exclaimed the geologist suddenly, the glass itself may be totally different from ours. It may be... God! shouted the doctor, jerking his hand from the cabinet and leaping straight backward. At the same instant, with a grinding crash, all three sides of the case collapsed and fell in splinters to the floor. Look out! shrieked Jackson. He was staring straight into the now unhooded eyes of the giant. He backed away, stumbled against a stool, and fell to the floor in a dead faint. Smith fumbled impotently with a hammer. The doctor was shaking like a leaf. But Van Emmon stood still in his tracks his eyes fixed on the Goliath. His fingernails gashed the palms of his hands, but he would not budge. And as he stared he saw, from first to last, the whole ghastly change that came, after billions of years of waiting, to the sole survivor of Mercury. A glaze swept over the huge figure. Next instant every line in the adamant frame lost its strength. The hardness left the eyes and mouth. The head seemed to sink lower into the massive shoulders, and the irresistible hands relaxed. In another second the thing that had once been as iron had become as rubber. But only for an instant. Second by second the huge mountain of muscle slipped and jellied and actually melted before the eyes of the humans. At the same time a curious acrid odour arose. Smith fell to coughing. The doctor turned on more oxygen. In less than half a minute the man who had once conquered a planet was reduced to a steaming mound of brownish paste. As it sank to the floor of the case it touched a layer of coarse yellow powder sprinkled there, and it was this that caused the vapour. In a moment the room was filled with the haze of it. Luckily the doctor's apparatus worked well. And thus it came about that, within five minutes from being exposed to the air of the sky car, the whole immense book, chair and all, had vanished. The powder had turned it to vapour, and the purifying chemicals had sucked it up. Nothing was left save a heap of smoking, greyish ashes in the centre of the broken glass. Van Emmon's fingers relaxed their grip. He stirred to action and turned briskly to Smith. Here! Help me with this thing. Between them they got the remains of the cabinet, with its gruesome load, into the vestibule. As for the doctor, he was bending over Jackson's still unconscious form. When he saw what the others were doing, he gave a sigh of relief. Good. He helped them close the door. Let's get away from this damned place. The outer door was opened. At the same time, Smith started the machinery and as the sky-car shot away from the ground he tilted it slightly so that the contents of the vestibule were slid into space. Down it fell like so much lead. The doctor glanced through a nearby window, and his face brightened as he made out the distant gleam of another planet. He watched the receding surface of Mercury with positive delight. Nice place to get away from, he commented. And now, my friends, for Venus and then home. But the other's eyes were fixed upon a tiny sparkle in the dust outside the place where the vestibule had dropped its load. It was the sun shining upon some broken bits of glass. 
the glass which for untold ages had enclosed the throne of the death lord. End of section 13